Welcome to Webinecki Windows. I'm your host, Donald Loring. Webinecki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinecki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we'll be continuing our series on unpacking sovereignty. This is our fourth show, and we will be moving towards the creation of Maine statehood. We continue our conversation with Professor Harold Prince, a native from the Netherlands. Dr. Prince is a distinguished professor of anthropology, Kansas State University Emeritus, conducted research in numerous countries, including Argentina and Canada, but especially in the Wabanaki homeland. We also welcome Dr. Darren Ranko. Dr. Ranko was a member of the Penobscot Nation. He's associate professor of anthropology and chair of Native American programs at the University of Maine as a master's of studies in environmental law from Vermont Law School and a PhD in social anthropology from Harvard University. So welcome uh, Harold and Darren. Let's uh, start our conversation on unpacking sovereignty. And we've had uh, three previous shows. And for those of you interested in the, that series, you can go to weru.org and look up the archived uh, Webinaki Windows shows. So we'll start uh, at uh, the 1775 Penobscot Treaty and uh, Professor Prince, if you will, start us with that. Yeah, the um, Penobscot Nation, as uh, both Darren well knows and you, of course, Donna, um, has fought for recognition of its uh, ancestral rights to their homeland. Um, that is roughly um, uh, all the territory between the St. John, St. Croix on the one hand uh, and the Kennebec drainage on the other. And it's a vast territory that um, the lower half, basically the territory from uh, the, the head of the tide down to Penobscot Bay had already been uh, usurped uh, by white settlers. Um, and the fight now was in essence uh, to preserve uh, the right uh, to the ancestral lands, the hunting territories and fishing grounds uh, above the head of the tide, which is basically where Eddington is now located. Uh, and there's a rock there called Nichols Rock. And so that entire territory was considered by the Penobscot as the homeland that had remained uh, while they continued to have access to Penobscot Bay and the islands there for seal hunting, for uh, clamming, lobster fishing, and so forth. But they did not, at that time, try to assert ancestral rights uh, to the territory below the head of the tide. Uh, basically, they didn't because they had fought very hard for it for uh, generations by that time, uh, and they knew that could not be stopped from usurpation, and they were too small by that time in number to put up effective resistance. So it became in essence, holding on to the last vestiges of the ancestral homeland above the tide where whites had not yet penetrated except for a few logging crews uh, had done so um, and with some penetrations, but overall it was still quote wilderness, if you will, um, meaning homeland to the Penobscot hunt hunting families uh, who had all their uh, tracks. So what then happened was um, that there was a little bit of a godsend for uh, the Penobscot and other Wabanaki nations when the uh, Anglo-Saxon um, domination 
was um, uh, ripped uh, in two by the uh, Revolutionary War. And in that divide, alliances were sought both by the British and by the American colonists, uh, because they both knew that while they could fight perhaps in a seaport or in a city, but in the countryside, they faced very uh, protracted guerrilla warfare where people who were familiar with the backlands uh, would have the overhead because the advantage of a small band of fighters in a guerrilla war would be that you command the moment of the attack and the withdrawal. You don't have a fort to defend. So by that time, the um, settlements uh, were more vulnerable, but for the encampments uh, that the Penobscot had, they could set up camp anywhere and live off the land and knew the land. So uh, when the Revolutionary War broke out, uh, the Americans were very afraid of uh, the Wabanaki, but also the Iroquois nations and the Cherokee who could um, uh, present a danger if they were gonna be retained by the enemy. Uh, earlier it would have been the French, but now it would be the British after 1763, uh, that either one would have the resources to purchase, if you will, uh, warriors on their side with either making promises or gifts uh, and launch the attacks. This was an old tactic. So when the Revolutionary War um, broke out, uh, Samuel Adams, as one of the Sons of Liberty, uh, one of the revolutionaries in Boston, together with uh, James Sullivan, who later became uh, the, the, uh, the Judge Sullivan and the uh, author of the first book on the history of Maine, uh, they realized that on their Eastern flank, uh, there was a great danger of um, the Wabanaki rising up as a guerrilla force on the side of the British. So a captain by the name of John Lane uh, from the militia was sent actually by Sullivan to Fort Pownall to assure support from the Penobscot, but minimally what they wanted was not so much military support of the warriors as much as neutrality. Uh, in other words, that they would not get involved in the fighting uh, so that the American colon colonists would not um, suddenly fear uh, assaults from raids uh, on uh, the coastal settlements in Maine and then all the way to New Hampshire and so forth and so forth. And at the same time, fearing attacks from Mohawk and Hurons from the Quebec St. Lawrence, uh, Lawrence River Valley. So John Lane was then sent to Fort Pownall with a uh, sloop, sailed down there and met there the commander at Fort, Fort Pownall and wanted in essence one of the Penobscot chiefs to come back and to make that kind of arrangement. And so he found uh, the old chief and Joseph Orno and a few other uh, Penobscots went on board and they sailed uh, back. And by the time they arrived, uh, the Battle of Bunker Hill had just uh, happened and so Joseph Orno, in this crazy retreat and, and people counting the wounded and the, and the dead, Joseph Orno appeared there in Watertown. And we don't have good records of it other than that Joseph Orno used that moment as a very skilled diplomat to make sure that if he made promises that something would be given in return, which was a respect for the sovereignty of the Penobscot nation of their ancestral homeland. 
and um, because the Penobscot were facing repeated encroachments by hunters, trappers, loggers, and Penobscot people, when they would be fishing or camping or wherever they, they were, were facing violence from these um, frontier settlers uh, who would want them away from a fishing ground or a whatever kind of territory it might be. So the quid pro quo uh, that Joseph Orno, as a very old man already by that time, but very skilled uh, diplomat, uh, was to get these guarantees. And those guarantees were in essence that the, uh, if the colonists would win, that they would respect as an independent American nation in charge of their own governments, uh, both in Massachusetts as well as the 13 United Colonies, um, that uh, the native rights would be respected. And that's the essence that Joseph Orono returned with that he thought by um, not only staying neutral, but actively supporting the colonists in the war, uh, which they did, and then later making sure that his great uh, influence as a member of the Wabanaki Confederacy to basically secure support also from the Passamaquoddy, Maliseet and Mi'kmaq, uh, that they would not just be neutral, which was the minimal that the, that the colonists wanted in the uprising, but they actually would side on the part of the American colonists in the Revolutionary War, that they would think that they would get uh, rewarded for that by the promises being made. And that, of course, sadly, they were mistaken. So this uh, 1775 uh, treaty, is it, would you call it a treaty or? It's a Watertown water agreement. Um, and uh, because it wasn't formalized with the signatures of um, the Penobscot chiefs, like the one in 1796, um, but it was minimally a pledge uh, of equal value to those of wampum belts, for example. You know, when you had a wampum belt oral agreement, so the chief um, uh, Orono um, would have walked away with the understanding that that would have been equivalent to a treaty. But you could bicker about words here. But I think that uh, in the mind of Orono, that was a pledge made to him. Uh, and uh, by virtue of wampum belt diplomacy, whereby the wampum belt is the, uh, the symbolic token, if you will, that shows that the person speaking is sincere in the eyes of the, the creator, the almighty, uh, the great spirit, if you will, uh, that those words were not going to be later retracted. And so that's exactly how Orono later uh, repeatedly comes back to the promises made and at Watertown in 1775 by General Warren in particular. Don, if I, if I could, yeah, I think just to reiterate what Harold has been saying, you know, Orno is a part of a long line of diplomats um, that really do shape um, what is happening from the French and Indian Wars. I mean, before, of course, but from the French and Indian Wars, so-called, uh, forward into uh, all the way through to main statehood. Bashabez, Laurent, Orono, they all exploit um, with with great skill sort of the weaknesses of, of, of the day. And um, it, it's very correct that, you know, the Revolutionary War um, was a moment of reprieve where 
as you both know, and I'm sure you've, you, you know, and I know you've covered this in previous, you know, the, you know, the Fitz proclamations, these sort of really strident colonial, you know, basically uh, death marches, attempts at real extermination. This gets paused during this revolutionary period in a certain way, um, wherein Penobscot and other Wabanaki tribes, you know, have a very important role in, in, a, a, in a coming war, in conflict, and these diplomats, and there were many, of course, across uh, Wabanaki that, that shaped this. You know, I think, you know, one of the things that I think the goal of the series is to, is to say, these critical moments in time are shaped by Wabanaki people um, in really important ways, and Harold gave a great recitation of Orono's role, and then, you know, and just the movement, and I know we'll, we'll talk about it. I mean, this energy of, you know, the Bunker Hill and, you know, I guess there's one account, Harold, of like, you know, while Orono is speaking, you know, the, the, you know, people are dying outside or there's, you know, this is idea that he's really, you know, shows up at a moment of great peril um, for what becomes the American cause and offers and, and, and basically gets agreements to, to shape this. And this becomes even more uh, recognized in the Treaty of Watertown with the next year with the other Wabanaki tribal nations, um, which is the first treaty after the Declaration of Independence, right? So it, it shows you the importance of Wabanaki alliance friendship for the American project for this new nation, this settler nation coming into being that really relied upon um, Wabanaki people alliance and, and, and uh, while diminished, the, there was still because of the delicate um, frontier matters, great strength for Wabanaki people in this, in this coming conflict. So I think that those are, you know, the bookends of the narrative for, for people to understand is just, just how critical and, and probably it hadn't been since Dummer's War that Wabanaki people had, had assumed such a critical and important kind of um, power center for, for in the Northeast um, as well. So it, it was rough for, <laughs> in terms of exacting a certain kind of influence um, that the revolution definitely uh, creates that space. May I quickly comment on uh, Darren's uh, synopsis here? Yes, and what should not be forgotten either is the role of France. Uh, the, uh, Darren was referring to the French and Indian War. You can have uh, bickering about the naming of these wars, but the fact is that the Wabanaki had been allied historically with the French and lost enormously when the French uh, signed the Treaty of Paris in 1763 that terminated those wars and uh, the French basically gave up its claims in the Northeast. Uh, they stayed, of course, uh, in the South, in what's later known as Louisiana, or was known then as Louisiana. That was also abolished later. But the fact is that the, um, when the French were siding with the uh, revolutionaries, basically to get at their arch enemy, the British, which, by the way, is one reason when we people talk about whites, you really lose an incredibly important uh, nuance in terms of these deep divisions religiously and linguistically and culturally uh, between the various European nations competing not only on the European continent, but all across the globe at that time uh, for supremacy. And um, so the French crown uh, at one point uh, sees an opportunity like the Wabanaki to drive a wedge uh, into British, uh, British um, uh, hegemony, um, supreme power, 
by this massive uprising of the 13 colonies. Actually, uh, Nova Scotia was also an uprising, uh, but there it failed. Um, so the, what became known as the 13 colonies was actually more than that. It was just those 13 that succeeded to succeed from, um, uh, from the British monarchy. And so when the French uh, pledged support, it gave an enormous um, thrill, if you will, on the part of uh, many of the native nations that historically had allied themselves with the French crown, uh, but also a supply of weapons, of course. And so, um, uh, and that all uh, unfolds. Uh, the, the, um, the importance of the Revolutionary War for the Wabanaki uh, has not been fully understood uh, so far. Um, for example, there's a well-known book by a Maine historian, uh, James Lehman, who wrote a book on uh, Maine and the Revolutionary War. And you look at that, it's a horrendous account as far as the Wabanaki are concerned because they're sim simply eliminated from the record. There's a well-documented record of Wabanaki sacrifices in the Revolutionary War uh, including um, the widows that resulted as a result of um, casualties among the uh, Penobscot, but also among the others, is completely bypassed. Uh, so the, um, it's, a, it's an example of a, uh, of a history writing that has written out the indigenous peoples from the history of this continent as if it is a separate history. You know, there's Indian history and there's American history and those people who have historically been specialized in American history are leaving out these other important uh, narratives that Darren well knows, you know, it's a hard thing sometimes to write in and correct that historical record. And that's what uh, Colin Calloway has done so well as an historian to set that record, you know, straight in the sense of not just uh, reducing indigenous peoples to a footnote as if uh, with the end of, uh, of colonization, um, you know, American Indians were the past. And that was the dominant mindset pretty much from the late 1700s, early 1800s onwards, that the expectation was that American Indians would die. And so why not simply erase them from the historical record? It's part of the uh, ethnocidal project, if you will. So they had all this. Well, first of all, I, the question I wanted to ask earlier was, was the uh, revolutionary government, was that formed at the time when Orono made this agreement? Or was that after? It, it, it was in, in formation at the time. Uh, these are evolving uh, processes. Like George Washington, when he rises to power, he's first, of course, selected as general of the um, continental uh, forces, the revolutionary forces. And, and he emerges in a way as the only uh, binding force between the Southern states and the Northern states and the central states as some sort of central figure. There was no, none of the, um, uh, the colonies were very much islands onto themselves. Virginia and Massachusetts had very little connection other than by way of London. Uh, there was some trade of course, uh, between Virginia because of tobacco and whatever to the, to the North and sugar and cotton, but not that much. And so uh, the binding force early on became this charismatic uh, military tactician with a great amount of, um, of personal power, personal power and prestige that was able to become part of the glue that uh, the later emerges, of course, when he's elected as the first president of the, of the United States. But until that moment, it was still a fabric 
the fabric was still very uh, loose, uh, took a lot of effort and a lot of negotiation to get these 13 colonies to become the United States of America. Yeah, so Donna, I, the first Continental Congress was in 1774 and it was formed as a response to these, quote unquote, the coercive acts, these policy, policies that the home country, Great Britain, was imposing upon the colonies. So there is a fledgling kind of first <laughs> go at this, and, and that starts to get slightly more formal. I mean, uh, Harold's exactly right. It's, it's, it's a very loose confederation, you know, in its early strands in those, um, and it's evolving in those 15 years between 1774 and 1789 with the, uh, as the Continental Congress. And then the, con the, the, the U.S. Constitution, of course, makes a stronger federal and more unified um, uh, nation state. Um, but, it, but I, yeah, but I think it's, it's all new. That kind of, that's the point, right? That Orno arrives in a great distress. Things are new. People aren't sure what's happening next. Um, and, and then the, the Treaty of Water, you know, I think these Wabanaki alliances for the now declared independent uh, nation of the United States, you know, this, these become just such a critical part. Um, and as Harold pointed out, often ignored and even you know, award-winning books about our collective history. Um, hard to believe that they're just simply ignored and, and silenced. Yeah, and it, you know, it seems to me that, as Harold mentioned, that, you know, the governments or whatever all thought that the tribes are just going to disappear down the road. So I guess that sort of left them open to when they make the treaties to just about promise anything because, hey, you know, they're not going to be around. So why not give them what they want right now? Was that sort of the mindset? Yes, very much. I give you an example. One of the governors of Massachusetts, uh, James Sullivan, who had a long distinguished career as judge, is the author of the first history of Maine. And we, uh, we were just referring to the award-winning book uh, by Bates College professor James Lehman, who erases, in essence, uh, the record of Wabanaki in the Revolutionary War. And that becomes, in a way, the standard narrative for a long time, you know, by generations of students who are hearing these kind of narratives. But to give you an example of James Sullivan, who is the author of The First History of Maine, published in 1796. He's also the co-founder of the Massachusetts Historical Society. So he's both a politician, he's a judge, and he is an historian, which means he controls the narrative about how we think about the past. That's the important thing about history writing, but also about revisionist history writing, right? So what I myself have been involved in for a long time is revisionist history in the sense, hey, let's reconsider the premises of the narrative. Is that narrative a reflection of the truth as it really happened? You know, who is writing that history? Why are certain things emphasized and certain things ignored? Who makes the, who are the gatekeepers of the collective memory? And um, Sullivan comes with this quote, that's one year before the treaty that Joseph Orono is forced to sign at Kanduskeg, now called Bangor, in 1796. And I'm quoting now. This is from James Sullivan, 1795. And the mindset that uh, Darren just was referring to is reflected in this. Quote, the savage casts his eyes abroad 
over the extensive wilderness of his wild domain and fights at the apprehension that his nation and race must cease to exist and that this mighty forest must finally bow to human strength. His agonies at first seem to demand a tear from the eye of humanity, but when we reflect that the extinction of his race are for the promotion of the world's glory and happiness, we shall be pleased with a perspective into futurity." End quote. That's the, the text by the historian of the first district of Maine, later the state of Maine, before statehood. But these, this is the guy who is also presiding of the wording of the text of the treaty of 1796. None of the None of these texts were uh, went to the Penobscot nation without being vetted. The translations were very often poor, if and certainly inaccurate. And the Penobscot nation did not have an army of attorneys like like Sullivan and his man. So the stacks, even at the treaty signings, are so asymmetrical that not only is the are the factors on the ground in terms of hard power, the number of guns warriors, whatever you may have, are completely asymmetrical. But also in the treaty signing, you get a completely asymmetrical encounter where one side dictates the text. In the English language, there's no Abenaki uh, translation of that that I know of. Yet there were plenty of people who could have been asked for the translations, who were missionaries amongst others, who were both uh, fluent in Abenaki and in, and in French. Uh, there were plenty of Abenaki, including uh, Chief Orono, who was fluent in French. Many of the Abenaki were fluent in French. So you could have had a, even an English-French Abenaki translation if necessary. But there's none of these uh, treaties are with an Abenaki, whether it's in Panopkot or Mi'kmaq or Maliseet or Passamquoddy language, there are no equivalents. And that means we are reading through a window that's completely one-sided linguistically but also culturally and politically. And it's very hard to deconstruct these documents that have acquired so much weight in subsequent generations when people are coming back to the table over and over to discuss treaties. And I'm saying those treaties themselves are suspect in terms of what they actually are. You have to really understand what they really are and not what they are pretending to be. So this 1796 treaty, what was that about? I don't know if Darren wants to kick in on that. No, go ahead, Harold. I, I think your discourse is better than mine. Uh, the 1796 treaty is a very complicated game that is the outcome of several uh, failed efforts on the part of the uh, Massachusetts Commonwealth to appropriate, dispossess the Wabanaki peoples of their ancestral homelands. And they tried it many, many ways. So A, by ignoring the plight of the Maliseet Passamquoddy in the eastern sections of the territory claimed as Maine, and in the case of the Penobscot, by creating a false argument that the Penobscot nation is entitled to a land grant from Massachusetts only in the form of one township. And that argument is rejected by Orono and the tribal council of the Penobscot nation repeatedly to such an extent that the second most important chief of the Penobscot nation in 1796, when Orono has given up in essence, the resistance to sign the treaty, he realizes 
uh, he has no option but to sign the damn document is that uh, Colonel um, uh, Neptune, uh, Donna, your own uh, ancestor, he is not showing up on the signing. And I think that if you look at his words in, uh, in uh, 12 years earlier, 10 years earlier, 1786, and later again in 1788, he fiercely rejected the premises of the argument that the, that the Massachusetts agents came to the Penobscot nations with, namely what they were entitled to or not. And he's saying, basically, we are tired of your uh, so-called documents. We are tired of your so-called quotations from uh, the records. Uh, we don't trust these documents. Uh, this land has been given to us by the creator, and we will not part. And so he, as the former war chief, later a title more or less uh, equivalent to lieutenant governor, uh, like the one that his son later um, had, uh, John Neptune, but I'm talking about his father in this case, um, that um, he, uh, um, Colonel Orson Neptune, uh, Jean Neptune, is not present at the 1796 treaty. Other chiefs are. One of them has a name that I've never, not recognized before. They may have so, sim simply added him to the number uh, of the people who signed. But the purpose of that one was to, on the part of the Penobscot nation, to rescue what they could. They had seen, of course, uh, what happened if you resisted the United States that was getting more strong every year. Uh, what had happened, not just to other native nations in the Ohio Valley, but they also realized uh, what was happened to uh, white rebels, such as in the Shays Rebellion, that was sabered down with ruthless force under James um, Bowden uh, II uh, as governor of Massachusetts. Henry Knox, of course, uh, was a stakeholder in uh, having the treaty signed. Uh, he was the Secretary of War. Uh, so they realized that um, further resistance, might they might end up with nothing. So it was an accommodation, if you will, by, John Nett, by uh, Joseph Orono as a very old man who had seen so much suffering, so much bloodshed, and near annihilation of the Penobscot nation that he realized I have no option but to sign. And in that treaty, uh, he basically surrendered uh, 10 townships uh, in 1796 uh, on both sides of the Penobscot um, river. He did not sign away in that 1796 treaty, the right to the islands nor to the river itself. Uh, that's an important piece uh, that, um, uh, is currently, as you know, in litigation, namely what exactly was um, uh, signed in 1796. And that was the question that you had. What was signed in essence was land on both sides of the river uh, above the head of the tide in total 10 townships. Um, but that meant that once they had signed that treaty indirectly, and that's not in the treaty itself, the Penobscot war on record of having maintained only another 10 townships and the land above it. That was all in dispute before the time. How far did the ancestral lands of the Penobscot that were claimed, how far did they stretch, in particular on the east side of the Penobscot uh, on the head of the, 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 the tide? And that stretched all into disputed territory with England. And so it was very unclear. If you study these maps at the time, you see how fluid and argumentative uh, and, and, and uh, open to debate still 
uh, all kind of claims were, but that treaty in a way uh, nails the Penobscot to a degree into saying we are holding on to X, we surrender Y, but by virtue of that document, the Massachusetts government was suddenly free to begin to sell off huge contested lands, which the, the title of which was uh, had been unclear. Uh, ironically, Donna, you have, as the former head of security at Bowdoin College, in the exact same year that uh, the Penobscot were forced to surrender 10 townships of uh, their ancestral, quote, reservation, end quote, uh, Bowdoin College got a five townships as a land grant uh, east of Milo on the upper Piscataquis River. Uh, that was given to a college that didn't even exist. In fact, it only existed as an idea at the time, but to help fund it so that they could sell it. And so they sold in 1801, two of those five townships and later got uh, two or three more uh, townships. I think in 1802 and 1806, they got uh, two other townships of Penobscot ancestral homeland. So the Bowdoin College uh, named in honor of the governor of, Mass of Massachusetts, James II, uh, by his son, who, uh, who agreed to that as the philanthropist. But it was basically the idea to honor James Bowden II, as, uh, who was the man who also was responsible for the sabering down of the Chase Rebellion, and under whose rule the first attempt to dispossess the Penobscot came in uh, 1784, right after the Revolutionary War when Henry Knox and General Benjamin Lincoln were sent to the Penobscot to negotiate uh, the extinction of the extinguishment of Indian title to their ancestral homeland. They failed. Yeah, I think just to add to that, so the Passamaquoddy Treaty of um, 1794 and then this Penobscot one in 1796, even more dramatically, these are the treaties actually, which are in violation of US federal law <laughs> the Non-Intercourse Acts, treaties signed with the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, um, which formed the legal basis for um, the Passamaquoddy v. Morton case from in the 1970s and then the eventual Maine Indian Claim Settlement Act. Um, but these treaties are the ones where the sort of biggest um, um, exchange, the biggest, biggest give up and structure all the sort of state of Maine relations later on in terms of what is taken over uh, in, the, in the redacted sections of the Maine State Constitution regarding uh, the state's responsibility to uh, the Penobscot Nation, Pasquale tribe. So I think you know, these treaties are critically important and, and Harold gave a great sort of context for how, how, how they came in to be, especially the Penobscot one. Um, but I just wanna, you know, and, and also for listeners, the, these um, four townships in, um, that were reserved in um, 1796 by Penobscot and then in later treaties uh, also reserved. By the time the state of Maine takes over in Indian age, you know, the, there's, it's always like it's bad enough, you know, the, the, the kind of context and sort of illegal, in, inappropriate and illegal contract kind of context of these negotiations. Uh, and then the clear violation of federal law in the 1790s treaties. But it's sort of what does uh, the, the state of Maine in particular do to 
uh, wrest control over the things that we'd retained as, as tribal nations, even the small plots that we had retained. And we see that, you know, eventually with the four townships, you know, somehow the, <laughs> the Indian agents able to sell those, you know, and, and get rid of them um, in clear violation of treaties uh, and treaty language that gets incorporated through the main state constitution and sort of how, how this goes moving forward. And Harold already talked about that this is so driven by what becomes racial superiority and racism um, and just this ardent belief that Indians will never have a future, you know, it just gets embodied in so much of the action and, and collusions um, by the, yeah, then the, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, then the state of Maine. Um, but in terms of these, um, you know, the other narrative that he's setting up with, with people like Bowdoin is these are direct gifts for cheating. You know, you know, these are direct uh, gifts for uh, brutal approaches. Um, and all the same people who are making the decisions are the ones writing the, the texts of the treaty or writing the laws or the decision makers in Augusta. You know, I think that's another part of this narrative that, you know, I think we're trying to elucidate is just how, how wrong it all is, how, how collusion and uh, misframing is, is a part of this story. And, and then, you know, one of the other techniques, and, you know, this has been well documented in terms of, you know, the Penobscot treaties and the renaming of uh, part of the Penobscot River as the Stillwater River. Um, these renaming episodes become so critical, and that's um, you can find that in the 1794 Treaty with Passamaquoddy, where they mentioned Pine Island as one of the islands reserved um, to the Passamaquoddy tribe. Eventually, folks who are decision makers rename that uh, White's Island uh, and then deny it through very complicated legal um, processes, basically take this island from the Passamaquoddy tribe illegally. But I would say there is some hope or justice that uh, the Passamaquoddy tribe just retained um, right and rights and access and control over the, over Pine Island, also known as White's Island, uh, thanks to generous donations by the the Nature Conservancy and, and other groups. That's now Passamaquoddy territory and land. Now I, I strongly urge you all to look at the twenty minute video describing its critical importance and in, in, in its return. Um, on Sunlight Media uh, to look at that return, which just happened in the last uh, month or two. So this naming and renaming and controlling these sort of mapping projects are not, in terms of colonial projects, are not new, um, but they certainly are um, have particular salience in Maine for uh, tribal nations. And, you know, like I said, it's always, uh, it's bad enough that these contracts, quote unquote, treaties are signed under absolute duress on the one hand, but then the retained territories and lands become uh, part of these exploitative um, backroom deals to curry favor and gain property for certain favored individuals in our collective history. And so it just becomes, it's so wacky if you start to really examine it. Yeah, and it seems like the, uh, when you look at these treaties, uh, you know, the 1818 uh, and then the 1819, the, the land that, that the Penobscot nation wanted to retain and, and those four townships were very important uh, to the tribe to retain those four townships. And they, 
since the, the 17, was it 1794 treaty? 1774. You know, they kept those poor townships the whole time. And then after Maine becomes a state, then they start figuring out how they're going to take all of tribal lands, Penobscot and Passamaquoddy, and they start doing that. And uh, so, and in the pre-constitution period, when they're they're developing the, the Maine Constitution, they recognize the uh, the the obligation, treaty obligation, to Massachusetts in that constitution. Uh, Harold, uh, and I know there's a lot of uh, same people that, that did the land deals that had a hand in writing that constitution. So Harold, do you want to address that? Yeah, quickly about what you said about four townships. Uh, one of the key things there is uh, what ultimately leads to the so-called bloodless aristocratic war of uh, 1839 and settled in the Webster-Ash-Burton Treaty of 1842, whereby finally uh, the boundary between uh, British North America and the United States of America is uh, settled. Um, but it's settled, A, without any Wabanaki input, but the Wabanaki, in particular Penobscot in this case, uh, pay the price because you have to see the sale, the forced sale uh, that Darren just referred to in terms of the four townships uh, around Matawemkeg, which is where the, um, the, the chief, uh, of course, lived, um, uh, Chief Adian lived there at Matawemkeg Point. And he had been uh, uh, harassed uh, and his life was threatened and his house was burned uh, out so that he has to uh, had to escape to one of the islands uh, for survival. But here's the Penobscot chief himself who is uh, living there far away from uh, the main island uh, or the main community at Indian Island. Because at that time, as you know, the, there were many settlements of the Penobscot people in small hamlets, if you will. Uh, and he lived at Matawamkeg Point, but at Matawamkeg Point, that's a major tributary into the Penobscot that reaches deep into Aroostook County. Um, and the military road that is still called the military road is called that way because it led to the fortresses uh, where now is Holton, Mars Hill, and Presque Isle. So the uh, huge uh, timber stands uh, of, uh, of a rich, rich forest land that timber did not go down the Penobscot to the merchants of the Penobscot River, but much of that timber from Aroostook County actually went by way of the Aroostook River into the St. John. And that means that the sawmills and the timber merchants in what's now called New Brunswick, they began to uh, profit from lands and timber that uh, the Americans tried to um, appropriate and had a disputed claim on. So by uh, eliminating um, Penobscot uh, land ownership uh, over a crucial juncture uh, that covered the east and the western branch fork uh, into the Penobscot main stem, by expropriating the, the Penobscot from that land, the military road would go um, freely through state-controlled land uh, across the bridge at the Matawemkeg River and then veer toward Holton. And so that became the, a, an artery, uh, part of a military strategy, if you will, to not get any harassment if you su supply troops or uh, cannonballs or uh, whatever kind of artillery uh, to, uh, to what later became 
uh, a confrontation, military confrontation that I just mentioned in terms of the Rustuk War. The rights of Malacite in the territories um, uh, or Passamquoddy further down, uh, nobody ever even mentioned that at the time. That didn't come uh, to bear until actually in 1980 when almost the Mainly the Land Claim Settlement Act had been signed and at the last minute, uh, the Holden Band of Maliseet uh, came into the picture of, uh, uh, of having to be compensated, if you will, for uh, lost uh, territory. And then, as you know, the work that I did with the Mi'kmaq uh, came uh, another 10 years later. That came in 1990. So uh, we earlier talked about um, the United States as a unfolding, evolving project, that's still the case today. Um, we look at the big contestation between the wings of the Republican Party as opposed to the Democrats, state power versus federal power. All these issues continue to be negotiated, including, um, of course, uh, now indigenous peoples increasingly so with the new Secretary of the Interior, uh, Deb Haaland is an incredible uh, progress in that regard to have a Laguna Pueblo a lawyer uh, now in charge of the Interior Department. Um, it's, it's an extraordinary development that um, I don't think people are fully aware of yet uh, how important that is. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really, you know, I don't even know if that would have happened without uh, this uh, race situation that's going on now in this country with the Black Lives Matter and, and the, the George Floyd murder and that sort of thing. For some reason, it's, it's almost like this country's reached uh, a point where enough is enough. And we have to look at the truth and stop listening to lies. And I hear that all the time from every aspect. And our, and our history is based on lies that we have to unpeel and peel the truth, bring forward, and talk about. And I think Harold, uh, and I know I know you get really riled up when you talk about uh, what Maine has done to the tribes in, in, in taking away their lands and uh, through fraud. And uh, but it's something that we, as you said, I mean, we need to uncover that. We need to see that. We need to talk about that. So. Um, the treaties, uh, you know, treaties were made to take our lands. I don't think they were made for anything else. You disagree with that or have an opinion on that? Yes, may I quote from um, uh, the author of the history of the Penobscot tribe in 1933, uh, the mother of uh, Charles Shea, um, uh, Nic uh, so Florence Nicolar Shea, the daughter of uh, the famous Joseph Nicolar, who wrote that book that is justifiably seen as a classic now, uh, The Life and Traditions of the Red Man, uh, very familiar to many people, I think, by now. But this is what she wrote in 1933, before she knew that four of her sons were going to be drafted into the um, military to bleed for this country. Luckily, all four survived. Uh, one of them is still alive, uh, Charles Shea, uh, well known to many people in Maine. But this is what she wrote in 1933, and I'm quoting. The treaties are merely useless pieces of paper today, as all promises have been broken. We are a segregated, alienated people, and many of us are beginning to feel the weight of the heel 
that is crushing us to nothingness. We are still in slavery, we're dictated to, and we're made to feel that we don't own our own souls." End quote. Yeah, she's even mentioned in the Proctor report, the legislature, they, they didn't like her much because of how outspoken she was. And I think that uh, it was women like her back then, uh, well, some men too, but these women got together and they really caused a lot of trouble. And Lucy Pula being one. So, so anyway, back to the, the main constitution and, and how that was written. Just Harold, if, if you can make name a couple of those men that had something to do with that constitution. Yeah, that's, I'm out of my territory um, uh, there. What I do know is, uh, I mentioned Bowdoin College earlier, uh, and uh, the convention for statehood uh, in 1816, if I remember, um, was uh, held at Bowdoin College, hosted at Bowdoin College. One of the things that I didn't realize is um, that the, the majority for independent statehood was very small, actually. Um, it was a heavily contested uh, election where a four-fifth uh, was against independence. And the reason was probably multiple, but one of them was fear that there was an elite within Maine had already started to form itself, uh, whereby uh, the weaker uh, components might suddenly, instead of being ruled from Boston, might be ruled uh, from Portland. Uh, the first capital, as you know, was Portland. Uh, later, it shifted to Augusta. Uh, and we all know that historically, uh, many parts of Maine, even today, feel neglected uh, by the uh, by the state government. You know, uh, because it follows where the money is, and where the power is, and where the education is. So, um, in terms of the actual writing of the constitution, I only know that uh, one of the few things I find interesting is that Bowdoin College, in particular, is mentioned in the constitution for a very peculiar reason. And that is that it was uh, in financial trouble. And the fear was that with independent statehood, that the commitments that uh, had been made in terms of financial support to the institution and other kind of support that the institution uh, had as part of the Massachusetts Commonwealth of which Maine was a district at the time, that under the independence of the state of Maine, that the privileged status of, uh, of Bowdoin might be in jeopardy. Uh, and then you get into this whole click element that one of the overseers of Bowdoin College, which was a lawyer who was a lawyer from uh, Portland, a very bright guy. He was the exact same guy who was part of the uh, delegation that signed the 1796 treaty uh, for the Penobscot Indian nation. So you see the, the intertwinement of the click in power. Um, in essence, uh, Bowdoin College has generated an incredible large number of these governors and senators uh, that came out of that college. I myself had the privilege of teaching there for three years, uh, which I actually liked a lot. And at this moment, uh, Bowdoin College is actually revisiting its own history uh, by actually looking at the relationship uh, between people like James Bowdoin III, um, the philanthropist who uh, is so associated with the college but also the Wabanaki dispossession and the connectivity between the Bowdoin family and the Hancock family and the Kennebec proprietors that led to the, to the dispossession of the Kennebec Abenaki, who were never 
uh, compensated for anything as if they had become extinct in 1724, which is not the case. Um, uh, they were repeatedly at the, at the, at the table uh, in all kinds of treaty negotiations afterwards, but then the whole dispossession, first by the Kennebec proprietors who took 3 million acres of land, and then the state of Maine, uh, through complicated dealings, sells another million acres right above it uh, to Bingham. Um, so to get the so-called Kennebec tract uh, or the Bingham tract, that's a whole reach there uh, just north of uh, the old uh, headquarters of the Abenaki nation at the Kennebec. Um, that was owned by Bingham. And then Bingham also owned another million so-called Penobscot tract uh, just east of the Penobscot River uh, in the homeland of the Passamquoddy and the, and, the, and the Penobscot historically. Um, and that involved banks and the whole thing. So the whole thing is a sordid history. If you begin to look at all the connections between the peoples who write these texts, who are the judges in court cases, who make rulings that become then um, legal precedent and that people then have to follow more or less in subsequent rulings. So it's a whole superstructure in the culture that is rigged from the bottom to the top and from the top to the bottom. And it has to be re revised and rethought in order to acquire justice. I agree, 100%. Well said. Uh, Darren, any comments? Yeah, I mean, I just want to kind of extend the, 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 the time period. I mean, we've stopped, you know, the, the tensions that we're talking about in terms of the crafting of the main state constitution and this recognition of, you know, Bowdoin uh, College and and the various form. I mean, the, the clearly the run up to the constitution of the state of Maine, in terms of you know, there's very few things that constituted wealth um, that at that time, uh, like property, right? So like land, and so the, it it has a um, you know the cachet to even establish to make a state you know, comes with it these, and Harold mentioned the, the, the major tracks uh, that, that sort of found the, the, and support this new state. And then, you know, there's all sorts of other uh, dealings as coming into the federal government in, in that time period where tr treaties uh, being made in, in the West are, are funding, you know, and then the sale of lands from those treaties by the federal government are funding the federal, you know, there's all these sort of land speculations happening that are funding things even in, in the East, right, in terms of how the federal government is handling these things. So I think there's that. The other part of this, and, and Donna, you've heard me make this argument before, I mean, even in the state constitution where in the, in Article 2, where you have electors mentioned in this category of Indians not taxed, right, being uh, one of those categories, there's still a kind of contemplation that that turn of phrase, it doesn't say Indians can't vote, it says Indians not taxed cannot vote. Um, and that's, an, that's a, a kind of recognition of separateness and, and, and sovereignty as sort of consistent with the treaties that um, the state is recognizing in, in the redacted sections in terms of uh, articles of separation from Massachusetts. So I, I think, you know, that quickly, of course, gets intertwined with the, the other, you know, and, and 
and Harold <laughs> gave that great quote about this sort of belief in the lack of humanity that we as Indigenous people had um, and the quote he read before. And then you, by the time you see this in you know, the, the Merch v. Tomer decision in 1842, uh, talking about our imbecility and as, as Wabanaki people, like this double move to kind of say, there is this Indians not taxed group out there, whether that's a sovereign entity or not, they don't exactly identify, although its implication is that there is a, a, a sovereign entity um, of, of tribal uh, peoples. But then this other move to use this category of otherness um, the fact that we couldn't vote or do all these other things and then quickly to regulate every aspect of our life. And, and uh, you know, the other quote Harold read, I think, you know, talks directly to that. And, you know, this quote from the 1930s from, was it Florence Shea? I forget who, who was. And, and so, yeah, and so I think this, um, this double move for othering, uh, one that po- could possibly recognize sovereignty, but then this absolute horrific intention of, uh, embedded all through racism and 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 superiority language um, becomes such a critical element of to dehumanize people and to take their land is a is a familiar tactic around the world and the state of Maine goes in doubly triply uh, into that as a process uh, that the the efforts for dehumanizing Wabanaki people. Um, in these first decades of statehood um, are so dramatic and lead to such horrific policies of, you know, basic regulation where the Indian agent being in such control over, over someone's own lands and resources that people have to go and beg him for, for their own things is just part of the dehumanizing uh, legacy of, of, of these of these sort of double moves in the settler strategies. So I just like I just I wanted to like close that loop to say, you know, these things come with other kinds of foreclosures and closings and openings and, and investments around race and, and inhumanity as well. Okay, thank you. Um, we've just run out of time, sorry. Uh, but uh, I want to thank Professor Hale Prince and uh, Darren Ranko for being on the show today. The music for our show was by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart, WMPG, and Joel Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows. <laughs> <laughs>